0: This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, I appreciate you tuning in today. We are picking up in our series of the people of God in part nine where we left off. I know it's been a few weeks since uh, I've done one of these lessons, and I apologize for that. But we're going to continue our series today. And uh, funny story, I have had I actually already been recording this this podcast earlier today, and I was going on for like, uh, 10 minutes into the study and realized that there wasn't anything being actually recorded so i had to start over so we're taking it from from the top again so we're going to be talking about the church today and how the church is used that that word and idea is put forth in in the scripture and church is a is a collective noun that comes from the word ecclesia as you might be well aware of but it's applied in a couple of different ways in the New Testament and the ultimate sense in which it's applied is is that of the universal sense we might say, of the people of, of God, because those are the people who have answered the call of the gospel, who have been baptized into Christ, as Peter describes in Acts two, thirty-eight through forty one, and then in verse forty seven, all those who heard his word that day and obeyed or obeyed his word were baptized, and God added them to their number. The King James Version, the old King James Version says God added them to the church. And that's the idea. You just follow that group of people throughout the next two or three chapters in Acts and you can see that's who's being talked about is the the church there in Jerusalem where where it was started. And Galatians 3.27 is another important text that tells us on the same point that all those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ as into a raiment. So, there's this clear uh, coming into a relationship, a fellowship into a a group of people that belong to Christ and they are called his, his church. And these people exist everywhere and all, all over the world. And even, even out of the world, because there are members of the church who have uh, died and now are in, are in heaven. So when, the Church is used in that ultimate universal sense, we might say. It's just referring to all people everywhere who are saved, who have followed, who are followers of Christ and have, have submitted to his will and conditions to enter into that relationship with him. And so it's not, and even, and even in the New Testament, ecclesia is not used exclusively, almost exclusively, but not exclusively of uh, religious people or of the, of the people of God. There's one occasion in the book of Acts where ecclesia is just applied to an assembly of a city. I think it's actually a mob that's come out to uh, persecute even uh, Christians. So it, the word itself doesn't have a, an exclusive like religious connotation, but uh, this is how it's used in the new Testament to describe the specific people, uh, the group of people who have submitted to Christ and obeyed his gospel and thus are called the people of God. <clears throat> so, you know, can we, you know, if we're going to ask the question, can one equally say that to be in that church in that sense is also to be in Christ? And you know, if careful definitions and faithfulness on, on the part of the individuals are maintained, then those expressions do refer to the same relationship, right? Um, but it, even then, it is erroneous to say that Christ and the church are, are interchangeable. And I think herein, um, many folks. Have some confusion, and uh, what I mean by that is uh, we can easily conclude that well, because I'm a member of a church or a local church, uh, then I am by virtue of that fact saved or I, I am by virtue of that fact, a Christian or in fellowship with with God. <clears throat> and that's backwards from what we see in the book of Acts, where it was the individual decision, the individual decision to obey God, to obey Christ. And, and submit to His will, that brought them into the church. Right, that's the order. So Peter gives the the sermon, tells them of Christ, preaches the gospel, and then they ask what we need to do in verse thirty seven. And then he tells them what they need to do, right? And then they, and then three thousand men apparently that day made the decision to do what Peter said to do, so that they could have this hope and they could have this forgiveness and have this fellowship with, with Christ. And then verse forty seven we get God added them to. Uh, the the number of the church, and so Christ is the Savior, and while we speak of you know, the the church is is the product or the result of His saving process, they're not one and the same thing. And so it's we you know we can't allow ourselves to think that I'm a Christian because I'm a member of such and such church. No, I I am a member of such and such church because I am a, a Christian. I'm a member of Christ's church because I am a Christian. In other words because I am loyal to the king I am loyal to the one who came to to save me and I and I serve him uh, but it was only those added by the Lord in Acts 247 that are members of his church and of course God doesn't make he doesn't make mistakes right 2 Timothy 219 he knows those who are his and sometimes this is referred to in the religious world as the invisible church although <clears throat> its members biblically are very visible and they're even what they do and their influence is is visibly you know seen in their service to to god and there's a lot of figures of speech that are used in the new testament to uh, to help us understand what our function is to be and in the context of those um those metaphors you know there, you know different points are made as to what the church is to be about or what, what work they're to be doing or what attitudes they are to have. Uh, for example, you know, the figure of kingdom is often used. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> the Hebrew writer says, we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And so, you know, in the figure of kingdom, we understand, and, and you know, Christ is king, John eighteen thirty two, And those who are ruled are subjects to the king of their citizens. And so Paul uses that that figure in Ephesians two and in Philippians as well, where he says, Your you know, your citizenship, if you're a Christian, is in, is in heaven. And, you know, he's using that figure to make the point. You need to live accordingly. Don't be attached to this, attached to this world or have loyalties in, in this in this world ultimately, because your king is is Christ. you serve someone beyond this world. And you're in the world but not of it. And another figure that's used is is the body, right? You hear of the body of Christ, maybe being spoken of, and that's that's biblical, right? That we have the church likened to a body in the New Testament, and Christ is the head, in Colossians one eighteen, uh, and in Ephesians chapter one as well. So we have these various descriptions of uh, of a body, and in those in contexts, in in like First Corinthians chapter twelve. You know we have individual members described as feet or hands or eyes, and and Paul's point is is that everybody's useful, everybody has a function, and nobody has the right to say to anybody any other member that uh, you are not valuable or that you aren't useful or that you you know you know there's we tend we tend to grade things um as we perceive someone's usefulness in the world, and certainly. In the church, and Paul is saying that shouldn't be the case. Um, the whole body is is needed, and the whole body should be submitting to Christ in singleness of spirit. Another figure that's used is that of a building, uh, so just or or a temple, where Christ is the the foundation, the cornerstone, and the individuals then are living stones that God is adding to this building that he's that he's creating. Like in one Peter two five, that's how Christians are described as as living stones. Um, and also as a, as a family, you're familiar with that where Christ is the firstborn son in that family. And then those who are born again are his brethren or his children. If we're talking about the relationship to uh, the the father and, but in, the point is in all these figures, Christ is predominant. He's right. He's the King. He's the head. He's the cornerstone. He's the firstborn. He is, he is preeminent and he's the key factor, right? He's without him. None of it exists. And in the whole function, the function of the whole thing, the church depends upon him and love to him and loyalty to him and obedience to him, right? He says, um, he, said, he himself says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, right? And so uh, there we see, and he goes on to describe what, a, what abiding in him actually means in John chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in and you you will bear much fruit for my my father, and so prove to be my disciples. Right. And so so the universal church another another key point in all of this, these figures is to understand too that the universal church has as its units individual Christians, uh not local churches or denominations. And so let's revisit that point, you know, that I made earlier. I, I alluded to you know, kind of getting getting that order right in our minds that it's not, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'm a member of an organization, a religious organization or denomination or church somewhere that makes me one of the people of God. And and my confidence is in in that fact that I've made that decision to, you know, join a church somewhere. That's not the picture that's given to us. First of all, in any of those figures and certainly not even when you boil it down to the language of those passages itself. And uh, let me explain what I mean by that. So in all of those metaphors that are used whether you're talking about family or building or uh kingdom whatever the case may be the body the new testament is is careful to show us that it is individual love and loyalty to Christ that ultimately determines whether or not we are one of God's people it is it is not by virtue of just joining a religious group, or missionary society, or denomination somewhere, and so the the point being, it's it's not it, that it's not your decision as an individual to to be a Baptist or to be a Methodist or to be a Church of Christ or or whatever the case, whatever whatever party mentality we have or whatever party we've aligned ourselves to, and then we find comfort in that because we think that that party is part of the bigger. Picture that party is is part, what makes up one of the pieces that makes up the universal church. The Bible is saying, no, it's not parties; it's not groups and denominations that make up the universal church. It's individuals, right? And so you have to you have to examine yourself as an as an individual, not wherein you fall in the party and am I aligned with party doctrines and teachings and and is this a, a, a quote accepted party among the religious world? It's is am I as an individual truly? and genuinely submitting to, to Christ and doing my absolute best to walk in his steps, right? Have I, have I done what he says to do? And, you know, and so that's why these distinctions matter. Well, right? so why, why even, you know, why even make the point to, to see that the church is made up of, of individuals because the danger is, is that we can, we can trick ourselves into thinking, you know, that, you know, by virtue of the fact that I, I'm a member somewhere of some religious organization that speaks of Christ, uh, that, that, I am, that I am saved. And that's not the picture that the Bible is giving you. That's not what it's teaching at all. And I mentioned, too, that even the specific language within those examples is reinforcing that point. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is giving that figure of the body, he says in verse 27, you are individually members of Christ, and so he's he's speaking to a local church there in Corinth. Obviously, so, you know he's speaking to a a particular locale where the where those Christians were in that city. But in the context, he is referring to all people saved everywhere, and he's telling that and he's and he's he's using that figure to help the Corinthians understand what kind of attitude they should have and what perspective they should have of one another and how they should see themselves within the, the body at large. So it's important to understand that Paul doesn't say you collectively the church in Corinth make up a hand or foot no he's saying you individuals within the church in Corinth are you know are a hand or foot or eye of the body and and everybody has a part to play and and uh you know we go back to to Acts chapter 2 and we see again that it was the individuals their their, their individual decisions to obey Christ wherein that that led to God adding them to the church at the end of that chapter in chapter 2 verse 47 and following so it wasn't that they were that they were making up their minds to join a party right i'm not i'm, I'm you know quote joining joining the church they were first and foremost joining themselves to Christ right and by virtue of that the Holy Spirit says God added them to to the church, and so let's go back to the Old Testament now to uh, to flesh this out some more. So Israel, ancient Israel, um, God's people, they were called chosen. They were called a holy nation. Many you know the same figures that are said about them in the Old Testament, of course, are are used of God's people in in the New uh, in in Christ. Uh, you know they were called God's own possession in Isaiah 1, 9, 10, 20 through 23. Um, but in in many of those passages, we find that God said only a very small remnant would be saved. And and this is something that Paul takes up in, in Romans chapter 11. He's discussing the saving of that, that remnant. He says, according to the election of grace in Romans 11 and verse 5. And so we think about that and how he goes on to expand it in Romans chapter 11. We won't read it in its entirety, but I encourage you to go back and, and do that. But what Paul is doing in that, that chapter of Romans 11, he's giving you this, this elaborate picture of a of a tree, of an olive tree. And, um, you know, we have the, the physical phase of the Abrahamic promise as its root. He says, I will make of you a great nation, he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Paul says some of the natural branches that sprung from um, sprung from that promise, the, the Jews, he says they were broken off in verse 17. He says because of unbelief in verse 20. And then he says they were wild olive branches that were going to be grafted in to partake of the root and fatness of the tree in verse 17. And that's referring to the spiritual blessings in, in Christ that God ultimately had in view when he made that promise in Genesis chapter twelve, that he was looking beyond, not just he wasn't looking specifically to just a physical posterity and and prosperity for Abraham and his descendants and, and the Hebrews, but ultimately blessing the entire world, even non Jews, through Abraham's descendants uh, born born to Isaac, and then through Judah and David specifically, and of course that comes in the the person of Christ. And so, but Paul is reminding them, the Christians that those in the tree stand by their faith. So those in the family tree of God are standing by their faith. And he says, don't be arrogant against the other branches. But he says, fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, in Romans eleven twenty and 21. And so the tree is no longer uh, Jewish, and it's not local church membership, but it's, it's talking about, again, everybody in, in the world who is faithful to Christ. Right to become part of that family tree is is by virtue of one's faithfulness to Christ. Right, that's what Paul says. You stand by your faith, regardless of race, regardless of social status or gender. Uh, your election by grace, as he begins talking about in verse five, is it, it depends on individual faithfulness. Right to be to be a branch and I you know I don't know if he was thinking of Jesus's words in John 15 when he was inspired to write that but it's it's beautifully consistent because um you know Jesus is speaking in individual terms too in John 15 he says if any man if any one uh you know my father will um uh, prune him and you know he's so that he will bear more fruit as he's talking about branches who uh who are true and prove to be his disciples so he's he also is speaking in individual terms and the same was true in in, in the Old Covenant as, as well, right? So the, this will be the church in its ultimate sense, the, the bride presented to Christ. There's another figure that's used of the church along with body and kingdom and the others we described as that of a bride. And so proper understanding of the people of God can leave us with a feeling of a helplessness if we expect to achieve that status on our own merit to be his bride, to be his body, to be, you know, part of the the true church, to be holy and with without blemish, but it's not through perfection on our part, it's not through, you know, some sort of works based system where we can earn our way into heaven or or be good enough so as to 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 justify ourselves before him, right? Because in in that figure of Ephesians 5, where the church is is spoken of as the bride, Paul says that Christ gave himself for her in verse 25. And so the the faithfulness on on our part is not a a meritorious kind of thing. It involves humility. It involves recognition of sins and genuine repentance and submission to God as we seek his forgiveness. Uh, But there is a response there. Right, I mean, that's, that's unavoidable, right? Jesus expected a response in John 15, right? Prove to be my disciples, bear much fruit. Uh, but he's talking about serving in, in humility with the recognition that I am unworthy of of him and what he's done for me. And, and he is my only hope for mercy. And without his sacrifice made on my behalf and in my stead, you might say, that I I wouldn't have any hope. I would have no advocate with the Father as 1 john 2 says but thankfully we do we can have hope and confidence in him and he is calling us to remain faithful to trust him to be humble before him to be continue to be penitent before him first john chapter 1 all right if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to to cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness But if we say we have no sin, we we lie and we do not practice the truth. So that is that's that's key to faithfulness. It's not, you know, an an idea that I'm I'm earning my way to heaven somehow, but it's it's penitent. It's prayerful. It's it's humble. It's it's a recognition of my dependence upon him. You know, we we're told in Romans 839 that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we put that together. What we see in Romans eleven, right? Paul says, "You stand. You 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 remain in that family tree. Through what? Through through faith. You stand by your faith." He says, "All right." And so, we have this this body of saints of of God's holy ones who have access to one another, who have who who are all in the same field, who all have a a. A common loyalty to to the king, and let's say those saints happen to find themselves in the same city or the same town or or locale, and and they they come together and they they meet together on a regular basis as the new, in keeping with New Testament examples and in wanting to be about the work that Corinth was and Thessalonica and Philippi and others, they come together and they form a local church in that way. and and the various community, right? But it's they do that because of of their individual loyalty to the king, not because, you know, forming a local church is what we're supposed to do, and there needs to be a local church somewhere for me to join so I can know that I'm saved or something like this. And, you know, we may not articulate our thinking that way, but I'm afraid that that is how many people do think. Um, you know, Paul addressed a letter to the to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Think about that, right? What <clears throat> what he's calling them first of all, the saints in Christ, who just so happen to be in this particular place, and they're working together, right? He he calls them a church, and that's the that's the word how it's used in in the second sense in the New Testament, not the ultimate sense of universal, but. Um, uh, the the church and and the 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 local sense, and we can read of the church of God at Corinth and the church of the Thessalonians, and so ideally the local church is just a team. It's 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 universal church saints finding one another, deciding to work together, deciding on a a, a common oversight of bishops, and it should have as members only those who are Christians. You go to Acts chapter nine. And you read verses twenty six through twenty eight. That that church in Jerusalem, when Paul, after he was converted, they didn't know that he was converted, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and they, uh, they don't want to have anything to do with him at first. They recognize him, and they said, "This is the man who is trying to kill us. He's not a Christian." And then, of course, Barnabas, who's there, uh, and knows Paul's, uh, of Paul's conversion. You know he vouches for him and and explains and 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 talks about how Paul's been preaching the gospel and and he he is um, a disciple of Christ now and then and then they welcome him and he's a, and he works with the local church there in Jerusalem. Um, but at the same time, the local church is called to reject those who persist in sin. And this is according to Matthew eighteen and First Corinthians five and, and other places. Uh, but this uh, this membership in a local church is not as certain as that of the universal church, because local churches are made up of fallible people to make those decisions and determine who should be added or rejected and who should be given the right hand to fellowship and that's something that God has entrusted us with, and it's not to be taken lightly, but mistakes will be made uh you know there they may there may be local churches who retain the membership of of some folks whom God has put away. And that, that was the case in 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul wrote to them specifically about that issue. Right, He said, you need to understand that this man who's living in fornication, he's in sin. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, this is not exactly what Paul said, but there was a man, a member of the church in Corinth who was living in adultery, and Paul says, you need to remove him. But they had initially, at least, um, become puffed up, and they um, they were still accepting him rather than removing him from their midst, as Paul tells them to do. And then in another case, the local church may receive, um, or rather cast out, uh, some whom God would receive, like in 3 John 10, where you have deantrophies there. And John is writing specifically about this this man who rejects the, the very people that the Apostle John was sending to encourage that church. And... He says, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, is, is casting them out, right? And so in that case, you have a local church, you know, bending to the will of a man uh, who was putting away people or casting out people who, who should have been received, right? So we can err in both ways. And so, we, you know, we can't conclude that all whom we, rec- that people, that men, uh, local churches recognize as church members are truly in Christ, and therefore, are people of God, and that's really what we've been driving at, you know, throughout our, our whole lesson here. Uh, we have to remember that, you know, God knows of the fallible nature of his of his people, of his creatures, but He left the forming of local churches to man. He knows that imperfect brethren may function acceptably as a local church, and this is shown in the commendations extended by inspiration in Philippians one and First Thessalonians one eight. You know those. Local churches had uh, issues that they needed to work through uh, or handle um, issues between brethren, like in Philippians 4 with Euodia and Syntyche. But Paul could say still to the brethren in Corinth, even when you think about all the issues that those folks had, that those Christians had, he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And yet he still calls them the church of God at Corinth and so in doing that it doesn't excuse obviously what they were what they were doing and the sin that they were tolerating uh, but it does show that becoming a member of a local church is not the final step to glory you know we should see the local church as a, as a journey not a destination it consists of imperfect people but God intends for those people to grow up in Christ and keeping with his instructions and pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God for Christ Jesus as Paul says in Philippians 3 that is i think that is ultimately the spirit that is behind a sound a sound church not that they tick all the right doctrinal marks but are they people who are who are satisfied with nothing less than absolute faithfulness to God and who are willing to reject anything that is not his word that is the product of man. You know, there's a, a lack of such a spirit and an unwillingness to be measured by to by God's word. I think that identifies an unsound church. And so, you know, we make decisions, unfortunately, on which which local church to join based on, you know, where they. Were they friendly? What you know, what did they have to offer me? Was I greeted immediately when I came in there? Uh, you know, or could I see myself and my family here? Do they have a great youth program? Etc. You know, we ask all these questions, we have all these criteria in, in in our head, none of which most of the time are biblical. Rather, is is this really a group of people, regardless of their shortcomings, who are devoted to Christ? Who are devoted to his truth and are working despite their foibles and their flaws, who are working to spread his truth and, and grow in their love for him and one another. You know, the letters to Corinth are filled with all kinds of warnings and admonitions to correct, again, all the errors that, that were found there. And, you know, and much of God's will concerning local churches comes to us by, by that correction that we read of in those letters in the first century. We're shown that a local church may leave its first love and Revelation to. And lose its place before God unless they repent collectively. The Laodiceans were were lukewarm. And they were told, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth by Christ. So be zealous and repent in Revelation 3.16. And further study of the seven churches of Asia should convince us that being accepted by the local church is far from satisfying divine demands to be one of God's people. These letters also show that each person is judged individually. And their hope and confidence is based on Jesus Christ, not the local church. So God looks for his people among everyone in in the world, among, among Jews on the basis of faithfulness, among Gentiles on the basis of faithfulness, regardless of race or gender, whatever. And now, just as it has always been, it's the faithful few, the remnant among Israel that will be acceptable acceptable to him. And so we can't we can't allow ourselves to be deluded into thinking that I have fellowship with God because I'm the member of some party. Remember, final judgment is on an individual basis. Second Corinthians five ten. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed for the deeds done in the, done in the body, whether good or bad. Now the local church becomes a proving ground for us. And it is by God's design that there be mutual edification there and encouragement in the worship and service of God working together to, to spread His gospel. Philippians 1.27, striving together for the purpose of the gospel. And its members have been saved from past sins. That should be the case with, with all of them there, as Israel was saved from Egypt. But, the, but there is yet the journey ahead through the wilderness before entering into Canaan. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that all of those people had that same experience. They saw the plagues and they saw the miracles and, and the wonders of God. And they, were, they all passed through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses in that way. And he says, yet, nevertheless, with many of them, most of them, God was not pleased they did they didn't make the they didn't make the journey they were part of the group but they weren't making really the journey in faithfulness and love and loyalty and you know what what Paul says in that chapter as well he says they all drank from the spiritual rock which was Christ that was him that was there leading them they didn't know it at the time and we can only see it in hindsight because it's been revealed to us but it means the local church is a, is a spiritual institution it's it's for planning and developing spiritual values in its members and its leadership should have that goal and every member should have that goal that as we're evangelizing we're also we're also growing together as we make the journey and it and the purpose of the local church is perverted when the goals of this life take the place of the eternal life goals. And we try to make the local church into a social club or a civic center or, you know, some sort of self-help organization or a lonely hearts club or something like this. Now there are all sorts of benefits along those lines to be derived from the local church, but that's not its purpose. That's not why it was made. It certainly does have a positive effect socially upon its members and in society at large. Um, But that's not, you know, solving world hunger is not the the goal here. The goal is to preach the truth of who Christ is and what he's done and what our responsibility is to him because of that. We don't, you know, we don't, we need not expect the the spiritual ideals of a true church to appeal to worldly-minded people. And they're going to say, well, that church, you know, they don't have food drives or they don't have, even have a fellowship hall or a gym or anything like that. How do they expect to draw, you know, young people or old people or married couples or whatever whatever demographic they want, want to target? Well, it, the point is, is that we're not trying to, we're not playing a numbers game here. Well, at least we shouldn't be. I mean, we want people to come to Christ and we want to see numbers grow, but we don't want to convert them on the basis of fun and frolic and gyms and potlucks and these were sort of those things are byproducts of the real work of the church. The, the benefits that come from those things, I should say, are byproducts of the of the church. God is looking for faithful individuals, not folks who just want to come together and play. Each one comes each person comes to him individually, obeying the call of the gospel, pledging allegiance to Christ, and looking to his word for instruction on how to worship him and live in his world to be acceptable to him and understand accountability to him, knowing that he is the final judge. You know, the church cannot worship for me. It can't worship for you. But Paul says, let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Christians are a holy and royal priesthood and they have individual access through Christ to the throne of grace in heaven. And we can and must encourage and assist one another to serve God acceptably. But in the final day, each one shall bear his own load. Each is responsible for knowing God's will, so that his conscience will be properly adjusted, and each must act in keeping with his conscience, even if this means conflict with the local church. Respect of, um, you know, res- respect for the judgment of the church overseers is very important, but it's it can't take the place of our respect for God's word. Maybe you're in a place where that that concerns you. You see the leadership of your local church moving away from the teaching of the teachings of God's word, and you know in your heart of hearts that's wrong, and it's not what you see in the New Testament. And you are wondering what to do. Well, you've got to you've got to your your conscience and and the Word of God constrain you. Not even necessarily what I say. But if you're in that position, you know that your conscience and the Word of God constrains you, and you need to do what God is calling you to do. And if you see folks moving away, the 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 church or religious group of which you're a member, moving away from God's Word, then you can't go in that direction with them. Jesus Christ is revealed in His Word; it's the final authority, and you have an individual responsibility to obey the law of the Lord to the best of your ability and keep a clean conscience before Him so that you can satisfy God's purpose and remain one of His true people. I hope that we're all striving to do that. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.